we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Ruth. So if you are, if you have a Bible, please turn to Ruth. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles uh, beneath your chair, that's going to be on page 222. So 222. If you're flipping in your Bible, you'll look for Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. If you get to the Samuels, you've gone too far, so come back. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and we are in Ruth chapter 1 today. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, or to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do the same. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for this story of Ruth. It's a beautiful story, and we ask that as we get into it that you would help us to understand what's there, especially as we look at chapter 1 right now. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. Help me speak clearly. God, we also uh, pray for those who are unable to be here today or those who may be providentially hindered. We ask that you would be with them, that you would encourage them, and that we would be able to see them soon. God, we are grateful that as we gather here, that we can do so because of all the work that volunteers have done to make this a place where we can sit on chairs and we can hear music. Lord, we thank you specifically for those who are on the setup and teardown team, all the work that they put in. God, we pray for our city, Westerville and Columbus. Lord, we specifically thank you that we have roads that we can drive on that are suitable for vehicles. Lord, we're grateful for the transportation department. We pray that as they work on those roads, that you would keep them safe. We continue to lift up Ukraine, and we ask that by your grace, that justice would be had, that there would be peace, and that you would thwart the plans of evil. God, we thank you for the missional partnership that we have with Lazarus Life Ministries, and we praise you for them being able to open up their first residency house just last week. We pray for your blessing on that ministry. And God, we pray for other churches in the greater Ohio area. Think of Cambridge Bible Church. Lord, be with Dave Saxon as he serves down there. Thank you for his faithfulness. We pray all this in Christ's strong name. Amen. And so, as I said, we are starting a new series, and this is in the book of Ruth. Now, how many of you, probably 10 or 15 years ago, saw the viral video of this guy, it's, it, was a, it was a church skit, and it just went bananas. Everybody started trying to do this thing, where this guy, this is, he's a speed painter, and he would paint really quickly, and there's dramatic music in the background, and he's painting really quickly, and you're watching this, and you're not really sure what he's painting. It kind of seems like this odd hodgepodge of random things put together. And then right when the music gets at its crescendo, the guy takes the painting, and he flips it upside down, and it's a picture of Jesus, and everybody goes crazy, and every church tried to do some form of this, and eventually became pretty predictable, like, oh, they got a painter up on stage, I, I think I know what's going to happen here. The book of Ruth is somewhat like that, in that as you read the story, you're going to be wondering, what is God doing here? But when we get to the end, it's going to be clear that God was doing something incredible to provide redemption for his people, and he's sovereignly working throughout every minor aspect. And now today, as we look at Ruth 1, the, the main point that we're going to take out of these verses is that God in his kindness and mercy will sovereignly use trials to bring us back to him. God in his kindness and mercy will sovereignly use trials to bring us back to him. And as we go through this passage, my hope is that it'll do at least two things. It'll, one, equip us for future trials. What nugget can I take away for when I find myself in a trial in the future so I can be well-prepared and well-equipped to go through it, similar to um, flying at night. If you've ever been in an airplane, you look outside the window, and it seems absolutely pitch black. It might scare you to know 
that pilots don't have any special vision to where they can see in the dark, unlike us, but they trust their instrumentation. They know that based off of the instruments that are on their dash, that they're at a certain altitude, that they're going a certain speed, they're going a certain direction. And based off the instrumentation, based off the things that they can trust right there, they know where they're going while in the dark. And so for us, as we look at this passage, it's helpful to think of it as this is some, some things that we can take from here that will help us when we're flying in the dark, when we're not sure what's ahead, when it feels like we're in a trial. What can we trust from this? What can we take from it to guide us and equip us as we go through dark seasons of our life? That's the first thing, equip us for future trials. The second thing is that my hope is that it'll provide us hope and guidance if you're in a current trial. So for future trials, equip, and for current trials to give us hope and guidance. So some background with the book of Ruth, because this is just kind of the, the typical practice. Every Sunday, if you continue to, to make your way here to Citizens, our typical practice is that we're going to go through a book of the Bible, and we're going to take it passage by passage, and we're just going to let the Word of God reveal itself to us. The, the Scriptures are our final authority. Not what I say, not what anyone else says, but what God says. So this is just the normal practice of our church. And so before we dive into this book, it's helpful to know a little bit of background. And the background of Ruth, when it comes to the author, we're just not sure exactly who the author is. There's some speculation, but at the end of the day, we're not sure. But here's what we do know, is that based off the last passage of the book, it was written after David took the throne, which means it was written sometime after 1010 BC. Now it describes a period of Israel's history that was during the time when the judges ruled. And so that lets us know that that was sometime prior to 1050 BC. You don't need to remember those dates, but it's helpful to know that it was written during the time when the judges ruled, and we'll get into a little bit more of that background. But here's something that's helpful for us to keep in the back of our mind as we go through this book. And if you have an ESV study Bible, you can see this right there in it. But it says, the story of Ruth exalts virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. Virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. And the theme that we're going to see as we go through this book is that it's God's people experiencing his sovereignty, his mercy, and his covenant kindness. So we march through this book. The common theme, the theme that we kept saying with Mark, that is God restoring his wayward people. We heard that countless times. The theme for Ruth is that it's God's people experiencing his sovereignty, mercy, and covenant kindness. So in your bulletin, you'll see there are three sections there. This is just basically the three ways that the chapter is broken up. Each week, we try to preach the main point of the text. We let the text drive the sermon, not the other way around. And so the text seems to be broken up in three sections. And those three sections can be summarized in one word each. And they are departure, decision, and return. Departure, decision, and return. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, starting with departure, in verse 1, so we, we need to understand the setting. We said that this was in a time when the judges ruled. So something to just be aware of with that is that those were spiritually dark days. There were days when the, there was no king in Israel. There was no formal government. And there were these judges 
Now, these judges, something to know about them is that they were not kings. They were tribe leaders called to overthrow a foreign oppressor. They were military leaders. They were fighters, not political leaders or negotiators. And the book of Judges, if you have your Bible, if you flip back just one page, you'll see the very last verse of the book of Judges gives us the kind of setting that we're in. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there was no authority. Everyone was their own authority. Everyone was their own final arbiter of truth. They had their own truth. Sounds similar to to our day. This is my truth. And it was very similar then. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Al Mohler commenting on this says that this was a time that was shaped by anarchy, apathy, and apostasy. And so now we're not told at what point in the judge's time period that this takes place. We just know that it's during those spiritually dark days. And something to notice is that there was a famine in the land, which is significant. We don't want to overlook that. But verse 1 tells us there's a famine in the land. It could be easy just to gloss right over that, but we don't want to because throughout the Old Testament, famine typically meant God's judgment, which would make sense if it was during a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the story during the time of the judges, when there's a famine, zooms in on this man, this man, Elimelech, and his family, his wife, Naomi, his sons, Malon and Kilion. And we see this man leading his family. Now, there's some irony as we look at this, because this man is leaving or departing Bethlehem, which is within Judah, which is within Israel, God's people, God's land. And what happens is that this man takes his family out of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, the irony here, is that Bethlehem is literally known as the household of bread. And interestingly, this man, Elimelech, his name, if you literally look at it, means God is my king. And so Elimelech, God is my king, takes his family out of God's Old Testament covenant people, Israel, out of their land, because there's no bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem. Now, interestingly, so we'll talk about later, but interestingly, Bethlehem, this house of bread, is going to be the place where the bread of life is born, Jesus Christ. And so we'll get into that further down. But Elimelech, rather than trusting God's placement of his covenant people in the old covenant, He takes matters into his own hands, and he takes his family out of the house of bread. He does what is right in his own eyes, which is par for the course during this time. So real quick, before we go any further, husbands, how are you leading your family? Are you leading your family to trust Christ? Is the way that you lead and and still trust in Christ within your family? Or does it instill anxiety? and questioning, wondering if God's ways are sufficient. Do you have uh, an if-only list? If only we could have this. If only we could get to this part in life. If only I could get this job. If only we could make this much money. If only this, then things with our family would be, would be good. Then we'd be where we want to be. 
If you have that if-only list, and that is going to consistently throughout your life continue to be your God. And you will continue to do what is right in your own eyes to pursue that if-only list. Husbands, are you leading your family to trust Christ, to trust his sovereign placement, that the bread of life is, in fact, all-satisfying? Elimelech took his family from Bethlehem into Moab. And it's helpful to understand some of the background. So it's, Moab isn't just some random place. Moab and Israel, which is where Bethlehem is located, Moab and Israel throughout the Old Testament had some tension. They weren't real great friends. They were roughly 60 or so miles apart, Bethlehem and Moab. However, Bethlehem, a town within Judah, it's kind of like Columbus, Ohio, United States. So it's like Bethlehem, Judah, Israel. So Bethlehem within Israel is part of God's chosen nation in the Old Testament. And this chosen nation was called to worship Yahweh above all other gods. And so as they were heading into their, their promised land, as they were traversing through the wilderness, they camped at one point in the plains of Moab. And while God's people camped there, the king of Moab did a super neighborly thing, and he called in a prophet to curse Israel. And so it didn't work out the way that he wanted to, but he tried multiple times to have this prophet curse Israel. Didn't work out great. But then what ends up happening just a few chapters later, so that's in Numbers 22, if you want to read that, and then a few chapters later, Numbers 25, rather than Israel being cursed, what happens is the men of Israel stop serving Yahweh, and they begin to pursue Moabite women. And so Moab and Israel have not always seen things eye to eye. Moab has taken Israel away from faithful service to Yahweh. And in this chapter, you'll see the word Bethlehem five times. You'll also see the word Moab five times. And it's setting us up for this big decision. There's Bethlehem, 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 Moab, Moab, Moab. And then throughout, there's another word that gets repeated a lot. It's repeated 12 times, and that's return. Return or turn back. So there's a big decision being made in chapter 1 of Ruth. They're going to stay in Moab, or they're going to return to Bethlehem. So how did they even get to Moab? It's interesting to note, and it's also helpful for us to see that in verse 1, it started out as Elimelech probably just having good intentions for his family says that they went to sojourn in Moab. They essentially went to visit. Just wanted to travel, see if they could get some bread. Just wanted to visit so they could provide for his family. But then we see in verse 2 that they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So it starts off visiting, and then it turns into them remaining there. And then it progresses more in verse 4 that they lived there for about 10 years. So they went to visit, they sojourned, then they remained, and then they lived there for 10 years. They didn't just visit Moab. They remained in Moab. They made their home in Moab. They're tethered their family to the enemies of Yahweh. And we're told that right after that, after, right after they go toward Moab, destruction happens. Elimelech dies, sons die. And then Naomi is left alone with 
no children or grandchildren in a foreign land. And brothers and sisters, this is just something for us to be aware of when it comes to the temptations of sin. Satan is more crafty than any other beast of the field. We see that in Genesis 3. He will tempt you and encourage you to just visit. Just visit that sin. Just visit that temptation. You won't stay there long. You're better than that. Just visit it. And the next thing you know, you're remaining within it. And the next thing you know, you're living there. This is who you are. If you feel temptations to go away from God's plan, please recognize the way that Satan does this is not just all out at once forsake God. It's just visit. Just check it out. Fight against that. Be aware of Satan's crafty schemes. I mean, Christian, if you're in the room, maybe you're in a season where you're questioning God's goodness. You're questioning God's plan for your life. In some way, the figurative Moab, quote-unquote, might look appealing. might look appealing to just go that way. I encourage you, don't go there. Trust God's faithful provision. He placed his people in, in this land. He placed Israel in this land. He placed Elimelech and his family in Bethlehem. And rather than trusting God's sovereign placement of them, he departs. Takes his family with him and there's destruction. I encourage you, trust God's faithful provision. Spiritually, materially, relationally. Trust him with your children, with your health, with your work. Because Elimelech here, in desiring to escape a problem, ended up creating greater pain for his family. He departed from God's covenant people and things got worse for him. Trust God, even when it's hard. We're trying to, in your bulletin, you'll see some ideas for family worship, and we were trying to, to go over that last week because last week is very similar to this week because we were supposed to go over Ruth 1 last week, but... A few days ago, we're trying to go over the first five verses with our girls and just read the first five verses and say, hey, the main point of this is to trust God even when it's hard. I'm just trying to instill that in Finley, our oldest, and say, all right, let's, let's pray. So I said, Finley, just pray like this. God, help me to trust you even when it's hard. She says, okay. And she prays. She goes, God, thank you for trusting me even when you don't want to. <laughs> felt really good about my teaching ability at that point. <laughs> but isn't that a peek into the human heart? God, thanks for trusting me, even when you don't want to. I know what's best here. Thanks for letting me have the freedom to do what I think is best. But look, trusting God is not easy. And if we're honest, we all have similar prayers like that. But when things get hard, trust God. Women in the room, let me speak directly to you. Wives, don't sit by idly if your husband tries to lead you away from Christ. You are called to be his helper, and what better way to help than to point him back to Christ to say, the way you're going is foolish. We need to pursue Christ together. Ladies who aren't married, but maybe are dating, would encourage you to watch him very closely. And if he consistently shows a pattern of not being willing to take godly initiative, then you should consider dating somebody else. Men in the room who are in a dating relationship, hopefully that puts you on edge. But take godly initiative. Lead in a godly way. Maybe you're in the room, you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're, you're interested in some of the things that are here, but you're not ready to commit yourself to Christ. Maybe you're here because your ways just haven't been working. 
You're like, ah, oh, what will I have to lose? To Might as well just go to church and see what's going on there. Have you considered submitting yourself to God? Have you considered submitting your ways to His ways? Maybe you've been like those who did what was right in their own eyes and it didn't work out well for you. Maybe you've defended and promoted those who did what was right in their own eyes. And perhaps maybe in the name of tolerance, you've defended those who do what is right in their own eyes. I would encourage you to turn to God. Turn to the one who is ready to accept you. The good news is that this bread of life that will eventually be born in Bethlehem opens his arms up and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you're anxious this morning, just real quick, I would encourage you not to make a decision that will take you out of God's covenant people. Don't do what Elimelech did. Maybe today you're someone who is in Moab. Maybe you've departed from God and you are currently separated from his covenant people. No, you too can also come back. Turn to the God who welcomes you. The God who rejoices whenever one sinner repents. Don't wait. And then church, this is kind of a side note, but this is why the way that we worship matters. We don't do, in, even in the context and the confines of Sunday morning worship, we don't do whatever is right in our own eyes. We do what's been prescribed in God's word. So when we come here, we want to preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, see the word, the Lord's ordinances, and read the word. We want to be entirely word centered, not doing what is right in our own eyes. So not trying to to poo-poo on on churches who do things differently, but we're just never going to have a speed painter up here painting a picture of Jesus upside down. Okay, we just don't see that. And so we're going to continue to try to be word centered. So that's point one, departure. Don't depart from God's covenant people. Trust God even when it's hard. Point two, decision. Now in this passage, we see verses 6 through 18, that Naomi and her daughters-in-law have a big decision to make. What are they going to do? Naomi is in a foreign land, and she has to make the decision. Is she going to stay here without her husband, without her sons, those who would be protecting her in that foreign land? Or is she going to return to Bethlehem? And we see that for 10 years, Naomi is finally going home. She's decided that she, so we see in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Things have gone from bad to worse for her, and she now has realized that Moab did not bring the salvation that her and her family were hoping it would 10 years ago. Instead, it's actually brought a lot of death and destruction. And so God has used it to bring her to the end of herself, and she is now going to return to Bethlehem. But the question is, why return? What is it that God did to convince Naomi to return? We see this in verse 6. Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Notice God's grace here. Naomi is far from God. I mean, nearly 60 miles on foot. And so think about walking that amount. She is far from God's land. And she by God's grace, hears. She hears the good news that God has brought salvation to his people, that he has visited his people and given them 
food, but she heard in the fields of Moab, while she's entrenched in a place that is strongly against Yahweh. And we see that the Lord had visited his people. She hears this good news that God has come down and seen their trouble. He's addressed the fact that they need food. He's provided them with bread. God went to them, not vice versa. And we see throughout all of Scripture that this is just the, the normal pattern. God recognizes the need of his people, and he addresses it. He goes to them. We see this in, with Noah in a wicked land, with Abraham and Sarah in their barrenness, with Jacob and his sons while they too were in a famine. God uses Joseph. See this with, when God's people were in Egyptian captivity, when God's people were steeped in sin and overtaken by enemies, you see this through the judges. He keeps sending judges to deliver them. We see it when God's people were confronted by the Philistines, and he uses David to take down Goliath. And ultimately, we see it when God's people needed a once and for all Savior, when he provides his son, his only begotten son, to be the one to deliver us. So Naomi hears of God visiting his people during famine, and she opts to return, to go home. And now, Naomi had her decision. She made it. She's going back to Bethlehem. And now Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, not Israelites, they have a decision to make. Are they going to stay with Ruth, or are they going to remain home in Moab? And Naomi tries to help them make that decision, like a good mother-in-law. And so she says, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now, Naomi, as we look at this passage, she really loves her daughters-in-law. They've been sweet to her. They've been kind to her. And she genuinely wants what's best for them. And so she insists that they go back, go back home. And at the end of the day, they're Moabite women. So to go into a foreign land the way that Naomi did is risky. Except when Naomi came from a foreign land and came from Bethlehem into Moab, she had a husband and two sons who could protect her. These women do not have that. The only thing they have is Naomi, an older woman who would not be able to protect them. And so Naomi points out they both dealt kindly with her. So please let me deal kindly with you and you go, go home. Now the the word kindly there is the Hebrew word hesed which means steadfast or faithful or loyal love. They've shown Naomi steadfast love, loyal love. And she wishes the same for them from God. See in verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now notice here, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Started that by saying, may the Lord deal kindly with you. So it's you, you, you. Naomi seems to have little hope for herself, but she has hopes for, for her daughter's-in-law. She says, you dealt kindly with me. You show me steadfast and love. I hope that the Lord shows you that, and I want to encourage you to seek that in your own home country because that's going to be best for you. The Lord's gone out against me. Let me just go home. And she tries to convince them. And the way that she defines, she talks about, may the Lord deal kindly with you. And right after she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, she defines it. And she defines it by rest in the house of a husband. And Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, that promise is fulfilled. 
you have rest. I just said, Jesus told everyone, all, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is defined as the husband of the church, of the bride. And so if you are in Christ, you have rest in the household of a husband. However, this doesn't quite convince Naomi's daughters-in-law, and so there's some back and forth, and then Naomi gets real pragmatic. So she just gets right down to brass tacks, and she says, hey, look, okay, there's no future with me. I'm older. I'm not going to take a husband. I don't have sons. I mean, if I had a husband today and got pregnant tonight, then you're still not going to wait around to, for them to get old enough so that you can marry them. So girls, just look at the situation here. You've got to go home. I, you have nothing with me. And Orpah actually takes her up on it. She agrees to go back, but Ruth does not. Even after all that pragmatic talk, even after Naomi says that the Lord's hand has gone against her, she says, it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Even after all that talk, Ruth does not go back. And look, the steadfast love, the hesed, that Naomi believes God has removed from her is being displayed right in front of her in the person of Ruth. It's right in front of her. And Christian, how often do we overlook the way that God has shown us kindness, the thousands of ways that God has shown us kindness in our daily lives because we are so focused on the one area that did not go our way. And I don't want to minimize that. That might be a, a very dramatic and very significant thing in your life. I don't want to minimize that but don't overlook the ways that God has been kind to you, the way that God has shown his steadfast love toward you. Ruth is a visual display of that in Naomi's life, and she's overlooking it right now. So, let's look at verse 16. So we need to look at Ruth for a minute. We need to see what she says to Naomi, because this passage, verse 16 and 17, it's a very famous passage, and for good reason, but we need to unpack it a little bit. So verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. So here's what Ruth's saying. She's saying, Naomi, stop. My mind is made up. I'm coming with you. The Hebrew literally reads, your God, my God. Your people, my people. Tony Marita commenting on this. He says, Ruth is not merely expressing devotion to Naomi. This is important to get. She's not merely expressing love and devotion to Naomi. She's expressing faith in Yahweh. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. Sinclair Ferguson, paraphrasing Ruth's response, he says that Ruth is essentially saying, listen, I've been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I have been converted. And really, if you think about the cost that Ruth was going to pay, conversion is, is honestly the only explanation for this. She does not have anyone to protect her in this society. She is going to a foreign land where she can be taken advantage of, where she has no protection. She has no one to provide for her. Ruth is too old to take a husband, which means she's also probably too old to provide food. So it's very risky. Yet, Ruth says, look, I've been converted. I'm willing to count the cost. I'm, I'm coming with you. Your God is my God. Your people, my people. She knew that she 
would not be terribly welcomed. In fact, one commentator said that there was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. (laughs) Ruth knew that there would be a cost to pay. But she said, hey, look, stop trying to convince me. I don't have any other decision here. I've been converted. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my God. I have to go with you. She counted the cost, and she chose the God of Israel, Yahweh, and his people over her own homeland, over her own people and their gods. So Christian, don't underestimate the power of one conversion, because here's what we're going to see, is that we're in chapter 1. By chapter 4, Ruth is going to be in the line of the Messiah. We see that she has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who happens to be David. And David, from the line of David, comes the Messiah. So just in one conversion, we see the Messianic line preserved. But also, like Ruth, count the cost. There's going to be a cost following Christ, and it will cost you various things. I would encourage you to be prepared for that. Don't buy into the lie that becoming a Christian means that your life is suddenly going to get much easier. It's just not the case. Families, remind your kids that following Christ is hard. just mentioned this to you individually, but now I would encourage you to remind your children of that too. Just prepare them from a young age that there's a cost to pay, and that that's normal. But it's worth it. Same thing if you're a non-Christian considering Christianity. If you end up becoming a Christian, just know ahead of time. It'll cost you friendships. It'll cost you relationships. It'll cost you opportunities at work. It may even cost you your life. But again, it is worth it. And church, just be aware that at any given point, especially in a room like this, any given point, there are several people who this week have counted the cost and are continuing to pay the price. Let's be ready to provide encouragement to our brothers and sisters. This is one of the reasons why we're called to gather together each week. First and foremost, we're reminded of who we are in Christ and bring worship to him, but then also to encourage one another to continue to press on. So be ready to provide encouragement and comfort to brothers and sisters who are paying the price. So we see that there was a departure. We see that there were decisions to be made. Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. Orpah decides to stay in Moab. Ruth goes, against all logical explanations, to go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, despite the cost. And so now we see, in verses 19 through 22, a return. So now Naomi and Ruth, they have returned. They've arrived in Bethlehem. And if you ever live in a small town, then you'll understand what verse 19 means. So look at verse 19. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Those of you who have lived in small towns, you know that word travels fast. And Naomi shows up, probably looking pretty rough. She's been through a lot. She just came from a long journey back. They're saying, is this Naomi? She's returning unannounced after 10 years, and people are probably saying, oh, hey, it's so good to see you. How have you been? And Naomi just answers real pragmatically. She, she says, don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi meant sweet or pleasant. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi, in her response to everyone, she's expressing, she says, I'm home. 
but the God that you all serve, I'm pretty upset with. He's dealt bitterly with me. He has not been fair to me. And she's upset. She's openly frustrated. But maybe you're going through something. Know that it's okay to be openly frustrated with God. We see this throughout Scripture. Look at the Psalms. I'll read a few of them here for you, but it's helpful to just look at the Psalms. Psalm 10. Psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 4. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? It's just a few. But Christian, you can be honest with God. You may be in the midst of a trial. Be honest with Him. Don't go to Him lying, acting like everything's okay. Be honest with Him. But here's the, here's the key. Keep going to Him. Keep going to Him. Express honestly what you think of the situation. Ask for Him to guide you through it but keep going to him. The wrong response would be out of anger and bitterness to just not go to him at all. Keep going to him. He's gone through great lengths to ensure that we can go to him. He's provided a mediator, Jesus Christ, his son, who is the propitiation, as Jonathan explained, so that all of the wrath and judgment that God had against our sin that would keep us from him has been taken away if we are in Christ. So therefore, if you are in Christ, you're seen as perfect so you can enter into the holiness and the perfection of God and come to him. And you can bring your requests to him and he will hear you because you can enter his presence because you have his son's righteousness covering you. Consider what we saying earlier, Father, hear the prayer we offer. Not for ease that prayer shall be. We're not asking for you to ease things, but for strength that we shall ever live our lives courageously. Or last week when we sang, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Or what we'll sing here in just a bit, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. Look at those lyrics closely as you sing them. Take your pain to God. Be honest with him. Naomi was brutally honest here. Also, everyone in the room, just be, be aware that God is always, always, always at work. We might not feel it as Naomi doesn't feel it here. And there may be a couple reasons for that. Sometimes it's because sin, unrepentant sin in our life has kept us from him. Other times it's him using it to do something else in our lives. Tony Marita, again, commenting on this, says that sometimes God's hiddenness or the sense of God's absence is a result of sin, as we see in Psalm 51. But this is not always the case. At other times, God's hiddenness simply involves God's purposes being unclear. Yet, the hiddenness of God must not be mistaken for the absence of God. He is always working. At any given moment, he's doing seven billion different things, and we might see three of them. Know that God is working 
in all circumstances. Naomi was very clearly embittered. She was upset that her family, the result of her family turning away from God, and she's quite honest about it. She was full, and now she's empty, and calamity has been brought upon her. Look at verse 21. Naomi continues. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice that she recognizes that she was the one who went away. She says, I went away. She doesn't say her husband led her away. She takes responsibility. She says, I went away. Then she also notices that God brought her back. I went away empty, and the Lord has, or I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought her back. God used tragedy in the life of Naomi to bring her back to himself and to convert Ruth. Somehow, Naomi's not the greatest witness here in the midst of trial, but somehow, something sparked Ruth's attention. And the way even that Naomi handled it, Ruth said, your God, my God. And so know that the way that you suffer matters. People are watching. Don't do things just because people are watching, but know that the way that you suffer has an impact on others. It can strengthen the body. It can lead to the conversion of those who are far from Christ. And so as even those who are far from Christ, our neighbors, our co-workers, as they suffer, know that we are the ones who have the message of hope. And so we should take that to them. Hey, yes, there is suffering in this world, and it breaks our heart. We hate it. It's a result of sin. But God has done something about it. And someday, all the results of sin will be erased. God will put sin to death. Christian, know that in his kindness and mercy, God will sovereignly use trials to bring us back to him, to help us understand that he is working, to help us understand the good news of the gospel. He will use trials to orchestrate that. We, Isaiah Isaiah 53, 6, tells us we've all, like sheep, gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've all done what was right in our own eyes. We've all departed as Elimelech and his family did. But return is possible. That same verse, the latter half of it, Isaiah 53, 6, says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So all of our sinful decisions to do what is right in our own eyes has been laid on Christ. If you confess Christ, if you trust him as the one who takes away your sin, if you submit your life to him as Lord, then all of your decisions to go against God have been erased and his wrath is taken away because Christ is the propitiation, the wrath satisfier. Perhaps you have experienced trials and perhaps you've responded in ways that were godly, praise God, if they weren't, know that Christ has paid for that as well. Know this. God has visited his people. We see this in Ruth, that that's what she hears, that God has visited his people. Even when she's far from him, she hears this. But God has visited his people in a way that Ruth didn't even foresee, and that he has provided himself. He sent his son, the bread of 
life so that all who call on him will be saved. Naomi's emptiness, she says, I went away full, I came back empty, was just a faint reflection of the real empty one, Christ, who emptied himself so that we may be made full. Naomi's calamity that she experiences is only a small shadow of the greatest calamity that Christ experienced on the cross to take on the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of all of his people. Sometimes, God in his kindness will take us through tragedy and trial so that it may bring us to himself. He may take us through calamity so that we may throw ourselves on the one who experienced the greatest calamity. Like Naomi, we have all departed and we're all called to return. And each day we're faced with decisions the way that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah were faced. Will we trust God's sovereign and good hand even if we don't see what he's doing? Or will we remain separated from him and his people? How will you respond when God brings tragedy into your life? Look at the one who has experienced the greatest tragedy on our behalf and return back to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Ruth. We thank you for giving us your word so we can see through the example of others how to respond in times of trial and calamity. We thank you for sovereignly using the calamity in Naomi's life to bring her back to you and to preserve the messianic line. Help us to get a glimpse of all the things that you're doing. Even when we don't see, help us to trust. Help us to trust in your sovereign kindness. Help us to trust in your mercy. Help us to trust in the way that you provide for your covenant people. We thank you for Jesus through whom you've provided these things. And we ask as we go about this week that we would respond in a way that reflects us returning to you time and time again, even when we don't know the answer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.